all that matters is. Wrong! This town deserves a better class. Heavy Metal Podcast. I'm gonna get a. If you do not listen, then the hell with you. Walk through the gate of consciousness. Yes, let's do this. Ronnie James Dio, part three o. Can you feel the magic, Mother Punchers? Feel it floating in the air? I certainly do. Because we are leaving the formerly occupied territories of central upstate New York, once plagued by a tiny militant faction of honky-tonk insurgents, and headed straight for the Customs and Border Protection Agency of the Motherland. Our most glorious and sovereign nation-state, the united subgenres of heavy metal. Pro tip here for all non-native speakers, when they ask you if you have anything to declare, just yell Slayer really loud. And if you happen to be wearing any band merch at the time, I wouldn't admit it if you're going to see them in concert. While technically not a crime, it's generally frowned upon by the hardliners they get to staff those things. Those dudes are pretty hardcore into, well, hardcore. But now that you poor, tired, huddled masses and wretched refuse are here, welcome. And Volume for All, a deeply reverent and lovingly irreverent exploration of the history, philosophy, and future of the greatest music in the world, heavy metal. I am your host, Isle Working Environment, Quinn. As you can hear, I was a little under the weather this week, and it wiped out my voice completely, which makes it hard to record a podcast. It would have just been five minutes of silence and then half of a Dio song. More silence, more half of Dio, and then it would end. Actually, that sounds like a pretty good podcast. Speaking of podcasts, we are going to pick up where we left off with our holy deep dive into the life and works of the late and the great Ronnie James Dio, which we can now officially call him. Question. Yeah, hey, Nawab, I'm just, just about to start the show, so... Yeah, that's why I stopped you. I've got a question. You sound like you got what I got. It's going round. Got a question. Okay, well, can it wait until I finish So what the, I'm thinking the, is okay. this. If it's so dark, how does he know there's a rainbow in there? What? Who? The bloke in the song. Ronnie James Dio? Yeah, the tiny bloke from the song. Ronnie James Dio. Whatever. How does he know if it's so dark? How does Ronnie James Dio know if there's a rainbow in the dark? If it's so dark. I was just thinking that same thing. I, yeah, I, no, I know, I know. I was rephrasing the question to figure out why I decided to become a podcaster. Um, okay, well, it's not a literal rainbow. It's a song lyric, and more specifically, a simile. Simile to what? No, not, not similar. It's a simile. That bent what did the show with Regis. No, 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 that's Kathy Lee. And don't say bent. That Colin, what they shut up in his sepulchre in a kingdom by the sea. No, that's Annabelle Lee. And I don't know what Carlin means, but I'm pretty sure don't say that either. A simile, noabum, is an abstract comparison when you describe something as having the qualities of another thing for the purpose of emphasis. 
like um okay what do you write songs about motorcycle motorcycles no motorcycle okay so a motorcycle is fast right right and powerful oh yeah yeah that's also true okay so so what's fast and powerful like a motorcycle that's not a motorcycle how about um a really fast and powerful motorcycle yeah you nailed it right so how's you know there's a rainbow in there uh you know what i i don't know nawabam uh night vision goggles austin answered right i'm off to the pub see you later okay see you later nawabam where was i ah yes with a premise for the worst buddy movie in the history of everything in which an unlikely duo embark on an epic journey together across three albums in just a little over half a decade. One is short on patience, the other is short on tall. And the one thing this rock and roll couple never expected to find on their audacious odyssey through the ancient kingdoms of magic, mystery, and mayhem was the one thing they needed most. Each other and a handful of gold records. This summer, join Ronnie and Richie's quixotic quest to catch the rainbow. Coming to theaters near you or streaming on all platforms if you're still a widow baby who's scared of COVID. Rated PG for strong subliminal messages encouraging you to kill your parents and a host who can't stop saying fuck. Hey, that last part was about me. So, on June 25th, 1975, after nine studio albums, five gold records, one double platinum, and four top ten songs, one containing possibly the most recognizable riff in rock history, Richie Blackmore left Deep Purple. But the band's now former lead guitarist wouldn't leave the group he founded seven years earlier without a backup plan. Richie Blackmore knew he had an ace in the hole, and he called it Rainbow. I think I just unintentionally said that Richie Blackmore had a rainbow in his ace hole. And I want to apologize for that because I really should have intended it. The group was comprised of all former members of the band Elf, not named Steve Edwards, and of course, Richie Blackmore himself, who took the band's name from the famed Rainbow Bar and Grill in West Hollywood, which served for decades as the second home to one Lemmy Kill Mr. of Motorhead, who just can't seem to leave my podcast alone. I've got a lot of love to give. I know you do, Lemmy. That is until Motorhead's frontman relocated to West Hollywood so that he could turn his second home into his actual home. There is now, I kid you not, a memorial statue to Mr. Kill Mr. on the back patio of the Rainbow Bar and Grill, unveiled after his death in 2016, which is both cool as shit and feels a little bit like overkill. Which is cool as shit. But the seeds of demise for Rainbow's original lineup had been sown into its name from the beginning, where upon the release of their eponymous debut, the band members were surprised to learn, with one very likely exception, that they were, in fact, Richie Blackmore's Rainbow. Gary Driscoll, I'm looking in your direction. It has been frequently reported that the lead singer and lead guitarist both joked about the band being called Richie Blackmore and Ronnie James Dio's Rainbow, which is not actually a joke because the project was more or less a creative partnership between the two and because jokes are typically funny. 
That's not my standard, but I am open to other interpretations. But after the duo recorded 16th century Greensleeves and Black Sheep of the Family in a Florida studio in 1974, before the release of their debut LP in 1975, Blackmore, Dio, keyboardist Mickey Lee Soul, drummer Gary Driscoll, and bassist Craig Gruber, whose two older brothers would be tragically murdered years later by a New York City detective and well-known loose cannon John McClane, traveled to Germany to record the remainder of what was intended as Richie Blackmore's first solo record after his departure from Deep Purple. The album was recorded at Musicland Studios in Munich, known better to locals as Musischen Land verstehen bis du die Fensterschnitzel haben mag schnell und eine Geburtstag. Studios. <laughs> and people say French is beautiful. So, due to ruthless German efficiency in all things except language, it was only a few weeks before the band had a finished product. And on August 3, 1975, the slow-swelling tide of funk that had doomed Blackmore's involvement with Deep Purple finally began to recede. The torrential downpour of Google Maps-inspired honky-tonk from Elf had dwindled to a drip, sending the spurious southern sprite back home to Tennessee. Not his home, but a home. Anyway, I think people still live there, who knows. And for the first time in Ronnie James Dio's decade-and-a-half-long sojourn through the deserts of boogie-woogie and brummagem blues, a light had suddenly revealed itself in the black. A new dawn was rising, and the dimmed horizons of heavy metal began to shine once more, presaged by a shimmering spectrum of vibrant, scintillating color. And here it is. This is Rainbow. distinct memory of the first time I heard Man on the Silver Mountain when I was a kid. I was alone in my basement, which means I could have been anywhere from age 8 to 18. Or 28. Anyway, that's not the point. I was playing a Dungeons & Dragons themed computer game. Wow, this is not going how I had hoped, for the record. The game was called Pools of Darkness, and I remember it was a series of floppy disks that ran on MS-DOS, so this must have happened at some point in the late 1840s, but I had my local rock radio station playing in the background, and I left the room for some reason, probably to do something really cool and grown up, but when I came back, 101KUFO was playing Man on the Silver Mountain as one of three Dio songs for what they used to promote as their Menage a Trois Weekend three-song block of a single artist that I guess was also having sex with two people at the same time. I'm not sure on the particulars. But as is fairly obvious, that moment and that sound burned itself into my brain in a very serious way. 
At that point in time, I had no idea that Dia was anything other than a solo artist, mostly because the other two songs on that block were Holy Diver and Rainbow in the Dark, which were the only Dio songs that I had ever heard played on the radio before then. There are these times in one's life, and we all have them, when seemingly out of nowhere a piece of music or art opens a door in your head, and you realize with almost divine clarity that you have no choice but to walk through it. Even at what I really hope was a young age, I knew that my life as an audiophile would be forever divided into the period immediately before and immediately after that very formative event. Now, Man on the Silver Mountain isn't my favorite Dio song, and its revelation in my life didn't send me into a fanatical crusade to discover Rainbow or Dio-era Sabbath, but in a way not dissimilar to how heroin addicts describe their first Uber ride on that particular dragon, the opening track of Rainbow's debut album had hollowed out a kind of insatiate pit somewhere in my being which meant that I would spend the rest of my life seeking out any experience of music even remotely similar to the introduction of Rainbow into my universe. And again, the weird thing is that I recognized it immediately, even as a child or a severely developmentally arrested man-child. Significant either way. I knew that I had crossed a threshold that day, and no experience of music or art could ever truly satisfy the rapacious hunger of that yawning and bottomless pit which was now an essential part of my nature as a human. So, thanks Rainbow. Cool song. But as it turns out, the world is filled with broken people. In fact, it's my best demographic for the podcast. And I love you hollow-hearted mother punchers. And nowhere was the growing appetite for a newer, heavier breed of metal more evident than in the popular reception to not only the song, but the album from which it came, and the newest avatar of Richie Blackmore's musical project as it was expanding the nascent genre of heavy metal. The debut went to 11 in the UK and 30 on the US Billboard charts, and broke into the top 100 in Australia, Canada, Japan, Sweden, and New Zealand. But honestly, I think New Zealand only liked it because they knew their parents would hate it back in Zealand. That joke only works if you're an American and don't know that Zealand is an actual place. USA! US! By way of comparison, that probably only Richie Blackmore and I would ever make, the guitarist's former band released their follow-up to Stormbringer just three months after Rainbow's arrival in November of 1975. The unfortunately titled Come Taste the Band charted below their ex-guitarist's new musical girlfriend at number 43 in the U.S. and 19 in the U.K. And while Come Taste the Band is an objectively wretched name for an album, it could have been worse had Mark IV chosen any other placement of the word come in the title. Observe. Taste come the band. Worse. Because it doesn't actually make sense. Taste the come band. Way worse. Because it actually does. And finally, taste the band come, which makes me wonder why I even started talking about this and seems like a good time to remind everyone to please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pod fix. Not only did Ronnie James do, there's no transition here. I just have to keep going and you just have to decide whether or not to join me. I can't go back to what I was, Metallica without the drugs. 
Not only did Ronnie James Dio now have a high-charting album that would eventually go silver to his name, but Man on the Silver Mountain even managed to break into the top 100 singles in Australia. A modest feat at number 81, but more than could be said of either Gettin' Tighter or You Keep On Movin' off of Come Taste... Oh, God, the Deep Purple album after Stormbringer. And adding insult to ick, once they completed the tour in support of their latest and grossest record, Deep Purple Mark IV disbanded in March 1976. Tragically, eight months later, Blackmore's replacement on guitar Tommy Bolin would die of a cocaine overdose as well as an alcohol overdose, and a lidocaine overdose, also a morphine overdose. He was really dead at this point. Okay, that's the point. But while the Mark IV reunion was now pretty squarely out of the picture, Richie Blackmore's rainbow was very much on the rise, with everyone except music critics picking up right where Black Sabbath left off with a commercially successful debut that was broadly dismissed by the musical intelligentsia, Billy Altman of Rolling Stone derided Blackmore's supporting cast as a completely anonymous group, calling the rhythm section adequate and subservient, and showcasing what can only be considered the worst judgment since Neville Chamberlain's critical rave of the early Hitler records, Altman said singer Ronnie James Dio has the standard hard rock lead vocalist down pat, with little individual style, but plenty of lung power. With little individual style. Wow. First of all, I don't appreciate you taking cheap shots at Dio's height. Hack move. Lucky for you, that one probably went over his head. Second, the one unassailable quality of Dio's voice is that there is no one else that sounds like him. The way that he bends vowel sounds, as well as his ability to make the cleanest of clean vocals still sound utterly fucking brutal, cannot be replicated by mere mortals. And many Bothans died in the attempt. Even the retrospective reviews of the first record of Ronnie and the Rain Bets are pretty uniformly shitty. Hailing from the famously polite nation of Canada, music journalist Martin Popoff, or as my friend Melissa from the Metal Chat podcast calls him, Martin Popoff, called the album a limp noodle of a record on which only Man on the Silver Mountain and 16th Century Greensleeves, quote, approach the worthiness of rising, the follow-up album we'll talk about later. I feel a bit like a crazy person reading some of this horse baloney, and not for the usual reasons. I know Rising is largely thought of as the crown jewel in Rainbow's three-pronged tiara, and rightly so, for many reasons that I agree with. But I also think their self-titled album is just as good, if not at times, better than the follow-up. A few points for consideration. One is innovation. I'm going to talk about Rainbow's influence on power metal when we get to the next album, But whether or not you think Rainbow can be considered proto-power, which is also my favorite brand of old-timey workout equipment because it really ogulvates your catheterators, Richie Blackmore's exploration of medieval chord structures in combination with Dio's limitless imagination in the realms of the fantastical, as both leaned heavily into their more aggressive musical impulses, made Rainbow the avant-garde of the heavy metal genre before almost anyone knew Heavy metal was a genre, or that we should probably call it heavy metal. 
And while you could argue that Sabbath and Zeppelin had been writing fantasy-themed metal since 1970, Rainbow's sweeping romantic visions were vast distances from the apocalyptic morality tales of Sabbath, or the handful of Tolkien references Robert Plant adapted into Zeppelin lyrics. You could argue that Zeppelin was writing fantasy metal, but why would you choose to be wrong? Other than Achilles' Last Stand and Cashmere, most Zeppelin tracks that you could put in that category are either not metal, not fantasy, or not neither. The Immigrant Song is pretty metal, but it's about Vikings. Who existed? The Battle of Evermore is totally fantasy, but metal usually includes drums. Ramble On is a folk rock track about how Gollum steals Robert Plant's girlfriend. Gotta be a real blow to the ego. And Misty Mountain Hop, which is about a pot rally. Did he just say pot rally, James K? James K. Pork? Oh no, my pot-bellied pig James K. Pork is gone. I hope Gollum didn't steal him from me. That'd be a real blow to the ego. And while Sabbath did write a blues metal song about a wizard, they also wrote four albums top full of dystopian sci-fi and existential horror. Songs like Black Sabbath, NIB, Wicked World, fucking every track on Paranoid, Children of the Grave, Lord of This World, Into the Void, Snowblind, Cornucopia, and Supernaut. After that, it's all songs about finding the right work-life balance and the joys of composting, but those first four are kinda dark. The world, according to early Sabbath, is an inescapable nightmare of perpetual human suffering, right up until you can get your hands on a spaceship. And then you can just leave. Zeppelin was too scattered and inconsistent to be considered fantasy metal, and Sabbath was just too fucking evil. That said, I don't think the innovation of Rainbow's debut was the invention of fantasy metal, but rather its fruition. The completeness and specificity of Dio's lyrical world-building upon the foundation of Blackmore's medieval chord and song structures, toined up to eleven, was something entirely new. And while many may attribute the birth of what we now call power metal to the Rising album exclusively, the incorporation of the fantastical into the metallic that would be refined and codified on Rainbow's second record really originates from the debut. And point for consideration number two. Wow, that was all one point. The sequencing. Other than one glaring dick punch of an exception, Rainbow's first album is flawlessly structured. It opens with the soaring, explosive lift of Man on the Silver Mountain, the incipient heavy metal poetry of spiritual ascendance. God, come down from the heavens, inhabiting man in the form of fire, so that man himself may reascend to godhood and be made holy again. Dio narrates from the perspective of the great cosmic wheel in the sky, which I've been informed keeps on turning. He is the sun. He is the night, the dark and the light, all the prime movers of the heavens that also happen to rhyme. Everything in the song is on an upward trajectory. The spirit of man is lifted higher, that he may stand atop a mountain, symbolic in that it is the geographical feature of the earth nearest in proximity to the heavens. And here is the second track, Self Portrait. Tell me if you notice anything about the trajectory in the poetry here.
Wait, so where are you going? God, I love that song. Black Sheep of the Family is an up-tempo blues rock cover in nothing but major. D's, C's, F's, and G's, followed by the gorgeous, sonorous ballad, Catch the Rainbow. the dawn. The come dawn? The dawn come. Yeah, you backed the right pony there. And then we arrive at Snake Charmer, a filthy, fast-paced face shredder about a guy and probably also his dick. Come the dawn indeed. The contrast and transition between Catch the Rainbow and Snake Charmer is almost as fantastic as that of the first two tracks. The album is just flawlessly curated in a way that Rising just isn't. Rainbow's sophomore effort achieves a higher peak than its predecessor, but it has to overcome the fits and starts of what I think is an unbalanced A-side to get there. But when it gets there, oof size large. So Snake Charmer resolves into a pitch-perfect medieval fable in the Temple of the King that I played into the show break of the last episode. And here is where the nearly part of the album's nearly flawless sequencing jumps out from behind a bush and shanks the listener like a bathing prison snitch. The lyrics on the song that follows on the bell-toed heels of Temple of the King tells you everything you need to know about what the next 2 minutes and 36 seconds of your life is going to be like. It reads like this. You'd never know there was some music playing until you talked your way inside the door. And then a sound like rolling thunder begins to push you right through the floor. And there's a great white sign with big black letters that just about explains it all. I don't know how I'd read it if I'm in the floor, but go on. If you don't like rock and roll, well, if you don't like rock and roll, if you don't like rock and roll, then it's too late now. Well, it's too late now. Is it ever? If you don't like rock and roll sounds like Elf trying to reassert itself on the B-side of this rainbow record. The song assumes that the listener does, in fact, like rock and roll and is being treated to the description of a place that they would willingly choose to be. But in reality, you just walked into a trap wherein the doors are locked behind you and a gang of malevolent imps in oversized cowboy hats play ear-splitting and derivative honky-tonk directly at you for what you can only assume is now the rest of your natural life. Sure, 
You beg for death, but no one can hear your cries over the shrill, relentless hammering of piano keys and the tiny, insidious goblins making mock overtures to your suffering with demonic shrieks of, Do you like rock and roll? How about now? 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 Anyway, it's a bad song, and it completely blows a hole in this otherwise immaculate tapestry that Rainbow is weaving. It's like watching Da Vinci three quarters of the way through Virgin of the Rocks, when suddenly he slaps a bumper sticker on the corner that says, No Fat Chicks. Maybe it's like that, I don't really know. But then they return to form and close out perfectly with 16th century green sleeves into an instrumental Jeff Beck cover that fucking kills. And I never like instrumentals, but this one really works. So that's my case for the debut. Again, I think it's nearly flawless. And Dio agrees with me. It's his favorite rainbow record. Oh my god, samesies. But when we come back, we are going to talk about how that album was the beginning of Ronnie James Dio's legacy as the unequivocal figurehead seated atop the iron throne of medieval metal, and why that legacy is so very wrong. When we come back.
The self-titled debut by Ronnie in the Spectrums of Visible Light is likely the genesis of the well-worn cliché of Dio as anachronism. He's that guy from the decade before this one who screams at you about Teutonic Knights and unicorn magic. Much of the subject matter off of the album is explicitly medieval, or rather, medieval fantasy. The crossbows and drawbridges of green sleeves, the conjuring circle and the year of the fox in the temple of the king, but I don't think it would be fair to view Dio's lyricism as a purely intellectual or academic fascination with what is commonly known as nerd shit. Remember Sir Walter Scott, the Scottish historian and poet? The guy who wrote the bridle of Triermain that Dio used as source material for 16th century green sleeves? Did you even listen to the last episode, Carlos? Well, Scott and Dio were both interested in the Arthurian legend and the story of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Known douchily as the Matter of Britain, it's the story of England's mythical founder that originates in Wales around 800 BCE and then got picked up for a second season by a couple dudes in the 11th century. It was touted by its authors as the true history of Britain, but the historical accuracy of the Arthurian legend is roughly equivalent to the historical accuracy of John Wick. Although the Knights of the Round Table did murder Galahad's puppy. This we know to be true. But the value of these stories really lies in their allegorical nature. In other words, they can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning, either moral, political, or spiritual. Obviously, Christians interpret Arthur's quest for the Holy Grail as a metaphor for the founding of England as a Christian nation, while those who practiced more of an occult philosophy believe those same texts to be a spiritual cipher that described an esoteric formula for the process of alchemy. And while those interpretations may sound quaint to us in 2023, it was only about 20 years ago that a more recent interpretation of that same story captured the imagination of the 80 million people who picked up a copy of The Da Vinci Code and subsequently bought tickets to see the film. Or should I say, bought a ticket? Because, I don't know, just, just a hunch. But one of the things we know about Ronnie James Dio is that he was incredibly well-read. And he was wicked fucking smart, which are not always one and the same. If you ever read an interview with Dio or watched clips on YouTube, one of the things that immediately stands out about him is the vast intelligence of the man. He exudes both a thoughtful nature and a depth of curiosity that you rarely hear even from other metal musicians, who tend to be a clever bunch. And really, he wouldn't be the poet that he is if it weren't for that big old juicy brain he's carting around. Dio may have had an intellectual or aesthetic interest in nerdy medieval shit, but we also know that he read Walter Scott and Keats, so he very much understood the allegorical potential of storytelling from an early age. Would-be music critics and heavy metal detractors might hear Dio's lyrics and think he's just another dum-dum with a thing for magical swords. But even a cursory look at those lyrics reveals an artist working on multiple levels of meaning at the same time. And I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here, but when you read lyrics like circles and rings, dragons and kings, it's easy to just reflexively roll your eyes so hard that it pulls the earth off its axis. But then you might have missed it when a few lines earlier, Dio told you exactly why he wrote a song about space knights on the opening verse. It reads like this. Oh no, here it comes again. Can't remember when we got this close to love before. Hold on, good things never last. And here's the key phrase, y'all. Nothing's in the past. It always seems to come again, again and again, 
again and again and again. If you don't know it, the song is called Neon Nights. It's my brother's favorite Dio track, and no, I'm not going to play it because we're not there yet, Ryan. Just because you're older than me, it doesn't mean you could tell me what to do. Unless, unless you think it'd make me look cool. Whatever, not that I care about that. Anyway, this particular order of Neon Nights are the narrators of their own tale. They tell us that they sail across a sea of lights, which is a pretty clear description of outer space. They also tell us that they move on never-bending light, and we know from Einstein that what bends light is the gravitational warping of space-time. We also know that neon gives off a red line emission when highly pressurized and combined with helium and an electrical charge to create lasers. Lasers! Come on! These are space nights! It's set in space! But with knights from the future. Oh, Echo, how I've missed you. And the very first thing these protectors of the realm choose to tell us about themselves is that they've done this before. It's both a first-person narrative from the character's perspective, and at the same time, it's meta-information given to us by the songwriter, who's saying, we've told this story before, and we will again in the future, again and again and again, regardless of the time period. And that's my point. Dio isn't writing a song about how knights are cool because they lived in a different time. Truly great fantasy is not about anachronism. It may be anachronistic, but it is about something timeless, something eternal. Like I said in the last episode, something fundamentally human. Because knight stories are hero stories. They come from every culture on every continent throughout human history, from Quetzalcoatl to Christ, and Theseus to Batman. We don't call him the Dark Knight for nothing, kids. And as we talked about last episode, more recently in our history, psychologists and philosophers like Carl Jung started cataloging these stories. And in noting their similarities across cultures that never interacted with one another, they recognized that hero stories were universal allegories for the eternal struggle of humanity to transform itself into something greater. And just when I got to the point in my research where I started to think, it's a song about space nights, Quinn, you might be overthinking it. The algorithm that the universe uses to make sure I don't sleep well revealed a quote to me by who else but writer and professor of comparative mythology Joseph Campbell who argued that the Arthurian tradition of dragon-slaying knights embarking on quests for the Holy Grail are allegories for spiritual human growth. Cool, cool universe, but I already said that. I'm trying to relate this to Ronnie James Dio. So why did you show me a random Joseph Campbell quote where he says, the real dragon is in you, your ego holding you in, that which pins you down, and you have fears and things. This is the dragon, and the problem of the psychiatrist is to break that dragon, open him up, do you see what I mean? This is killing the dragon. No, I don't see what you mean. It's not all about dragons. Dio also writes about technology and how we've used it to imprison ourselves, like on Dehumanizer, that one from 2002. That album, whatever it's called. Hold on, I'll play it for you.
Oh, it's called Killing the Dragon. You in this round, universe. But I will have my revenge. <laughs> so, quickly back to Rainbow and the debut. There are three tracks on the album that can be squarely described as fantasy. Man on the Silver Mountain, Temple of the King, and 16th century Greensleeves. But only that last one is located in a specific time in the past. Greensleeves is the title of an English folk song written in 1580 by a man named Richard Jones, and the song was so popular that within a year, six different versions of it appeared with slightly altered lyrics, but exactly the same melody, stolen by various artists of the time, including one group called Ye Olde Zeppelin of Leaden Make. Huh. It was the best version, though. Actually, Richie Blackmore told an interviewer in 1975 how exactly Dio let him know that he had finished the lyrics for their first original collaboration. He recalled, I went to the door one night, and there was an arrow in the door holding a piece of paper, and it had this song written on it. There was a note attached reading, Please record this song, or I'll shoot you. Quick side note, that's fucking rad. Almost everyone around Ronnie James Dio, including Richie Blackmore, talks about his awesomely weirdo sense of humor. In fact, Blackmore said that Dio was one of the only people who could make him laugh, which I think is a really cool window into their creative chemistry early on. I guess he never met Pete Davidson, though, because then there'd be two, I bet. Anyway, Man on the Silver Mountain is set in approximately the same place and time as Nevermore, which is nowhere at all. It's located outside of time, as we talked about in the last episode, alongside myth, dream, and fairy tale. Both 16th century Greensleeves and Temple of the King share a decidedly medieval aesthetic, but they also share another theme that I've found that runs through Dio's more dork-centric works on the relationship of the individual to their society and vice versa. On Greensleeves, the individual is the old wizard who has stolen a young woman away from town and locked her in a tower. The narrative voice is that of a rescuing knight and the people who've come to save the woman and then put the wizard on trial by a jury of his peers to make the point that theirs is a society of laws and such unjust acts of cruelty and violence will not be tolerated. Oh no, they hang the wizard over a bonfire and dance around the flames as he slowly burns alive. Now that's what I call a hung jury. <coughs> but finally, on Temple of the King, the wizard is now the hero, and he journeys to the edge of the world in search of an answer to some collective question from the people of his land. We never actually learn what that question is, but I have a feeling it's one of those why do we park on driveways and drive on parkway kind of deals. The resolution comes to the people upon the wizard's return via magical circle of teleportation, as Dio describes it. There in the middle of the circle it lies. Heaven help me. Then all could see by the shine in his eyes the answer had been found. So you guys don't have Bing? Because that could have saved you some time. Just go with Bing. So before we get to the next break, I want to make one final point. There are at least two formulas or functions that I've found so far in Ronnie James Dio's use of the fantastical. One is allegorical, like the spiritual recipe of transformation in Man on the Silver Mountain. The other function is social commentary a story about the relationship of a people to its heroes and villains and the complicated dynamics therein. I just wanted to layer that in because they're both going to show up again on the next record, and even on the same song when we rise up and dig down into what is considered to be Rainbow's unequivocal magnum opus. So don't go nowhere. 
Got a lot more wizards where that came from, and these magical motherfuckers aren't just gonna torture themselves to death. He's right, you know. Really gotta roll up the old sleeves here, guys. And so we will, when we come back. Two! 